Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff After Hours. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. Mark took the night off, but don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We got someone from Brooklyn here. <laughs> we got Phil Grimaldi is going to fill in. You guys have seen him on the show before, both as a guest and he's been on Real Crime Stories. We have the most unbelievable show tonight. Uh, I tell you guys all the time how humbled I am in meeting some of these great, great guests we have. Uh, NYPD superstars, people that do great things after they got off the police department. And tonight is no exception. Uh, Don Young did 20 years with the NYPD, and he, he, he finished up in, in street crime, uh, the citywide anti-crime unit, which was legendary in itself. And we also have Steve Lewis, who's a retired teacher, football coach, mentor to young people. He's a journalist. And he's, he's done great things for veterans. One of the things I want all of our listeners to realize is that September 11th this year is the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, something we should never, ever, ever forget, especially as members of the service, members of the military, and the public, for that matter, too. And a lot of people would have you forget it. And don't you ever forget it. Last year, remember, because of the pandemic, a lot of these politicians wanted to pull the rug out from the remembrance and the SBA and the PBA and the unions weren't having it. And good. They stood up to these politicians. I want to read the first two paragraphs of an essay written by Steve Lewis. And it's, it's unbelievable. I'm going to post for you people that are watching this. I'm going to post some photos on the screen for you people that are listening. I'll tell you what's in the photos. This is uh, Don Young and the crew he was with during nine 11 total darkness, the other side of midnight. For the first time in his 20 years of service with the NYPD, Don Young was paralyzed and didn't know what to do. On a clear, cloudless day in lower Manhattan, he's suddenly been plunged into a total black hole of smoke. At approximately 1028 on September 11, 2001, Don was just one block away from 200 Greenwich Street on his way to conduct rescue, rescue operations there. As he approached the World Trade Center, the building at One World Trade Center, the North Tower, began its collapse, sending out a cloud of toxic smoke that instantly turned the entire atmosphere into noxious poison. Standing behind a concrete wall on the West Side Highway, Sergeant Don Young attempted to take a breath and realized that if he inhaled, he would be asphyxiated. Just at that moment of wondering if he could make it out alive, an NYPD emergency service unit officer wearing a Scott air pack approached out of nowhere. The ESU officer tapped on on the shoulder, took off his mask, and gave the breath of life to Don. The two men buddy breathed with the fresh air until the smoke cleared. And then the ESU officer disappeared into the distance. It was so dark that Don never saw the ESU officer or identified him by name tag. Don never saw his rescuer again and never found out who he was. The events of the next few days were tumultuous that Don Young was unable to recall what happened to him for 17 years after that faithful day. Saved by an angel in the darkness, Don Young's life direction changed over the next few years. One of those changes led to a revolution in the conduct of urban warfare. I mean, if you're not touched by that, then you're not human. That is unbelievable. And I wanna, I wanna uh, welcome Don Young to the show. Thank you, and Bill. Steve Lewis, Bill. and of course my co-host Phil Grimaldi. Don, you, you want to tell us a little Thanks, bit in Bill. your own words about that day and where it led, where, what the detour it may have led your life to? 
Well, I, yeah, um, Bill, Bill, I was working uh, in street crime in, uh, out of Manhattan South out of the Rio. There was a garage back there. And I was living in Queens, and um, I was I had a court day that day, really trial prep. And I headed into Manhattan, and I saw the, you know, um, the skylight going into the Midtown Tunnel, the both buildings uh, smoking, you know, and on fire. When I got to uh, the office, uh, there was another sergeant, and here was Sergeant Mike Kelly, and some of our um, uh, street crime guys in there. And we mounted up and headed down to the Trade Center. On our way going down there, the, the South Tower fell. Um, we dumped our cars on a West Side Highway, and my driver was a Jimmy Donahue, a great guy, man, great guy. We started walking down toward um, where the North Tower was still standing, trying to help people. And on way down there, um, I don't know, maybe we got 100 meters from the building, and uh, you could see people coming out the window, and uh, the building started to fall. We heard it come over there. We were walking with a bunch of uh, uh, firemen, and we heard it come over there, their radios. And uh, I turned, I started running, you know, heading back up the West Side Highway thinking I was going to get hit with a piece of metal on my back. And I, I saw a wall and kind of ditched behind the wall. And that's when I, that crap, that uh, cloud came billowing down like a, like a locomotive, man. You couldn't see like centimeters in front of your face. And um, I took a breath and I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. And then out of nowhere, I don't know how he, how he saw me, but an ESU cop, man, came over, man. And he tapped me on the soldier, shoulder and we started buddy breathing. And as, as the cloud dissipated, um, uh, he disappeared. And then I continued looking for my guys and went down there. And um, uh, the memories of that, you know, like everybody else, I spent months down there. But soon after that, I retired in 2002. And, um, you know, I wanted to do something to help our country and also our city. And I got involved in overseas um, uh, police work in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, to try to get some payback for what took place in New York. You know, Don, when I read your, your resume, I was like, Oh my God! It says you're a military contract for the UN, but you've been to like ten different countries, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if uh, you looked, uh, you took a list of the ten worst countries to be in, or the most difficult countries, war-torn, developing countries, I'd probably be in seven of them. I've been all over the place. Wow! It's like. Go ahead, Phil. I'm sorry. I wanted to ask Don a question. Did you, uh, and I myself, I got down to ground zero after the collapse. I got there in the afternoon, probably about one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, but I was down there for about on and off for seven weeks and I developed some illnesses. Did you have any, uh, breathing illnesses, asthma, PTS, anything like that? Well, it's funny to ask that, you know, um, because soon after retiring, I was telling Bill earlier, I got involved in, uh, uh working for the Department of Defense, the Department of State as a contractor overseas, and I never paid attention uh, to, to any signs that, um, that I had. When I was over in Afghanistan, I got den identified with uh, some skin cancer. I've always had a problem um, since 9-11 breathing, you know. If I talk for a little bit, uh, I, 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 got, I start coughing. I have um, uh, sleep apnea. I never paid attention to it until recently. And, and actually, um, I just got evac'd out of Africa because we had problems over there. And my intention uh, for a bad thing getting backed out of the country, uh, I'm going to go down and, and go to Mount Sinai. And I signed up. But, yes, I have those problems, and it's getting worse, really. I just never paid attention to it. I assumed it was just, you know, as you get older, you know, um, you get those post-nasal drips and, and, and things come, you know, uh, things pop up. But, no, when I started researching it, I realized that it's from 9-11, um, uh, you know, uh, illnesses. 
I myself, I was fortunate. I started having similar things right after 9-11. Within months, I had lost my voice and stuff. Never went. I went to the doctor once. They gave me some stuff. I had to go back. And then I kind of put it on the back burner. But in 2007, I uh, ran into a lieutenant that was down there that had suffered cancer. And he convinced me to start going for the screening. And in 2007, that's when I went and I got diagnosed with all the uh, the same thing, the sleep apnea, the chronic sinusitis, the asthma, yeah, all the yeah. rest of it. You know, I often wondered because... Two guys on my team, uh, Chris Strzok and Bobby Williamson, died from the after effects, you know? And yeah. how is it possible that, you know, you're on the same pile next to a guy and they catch this thing and it, and it reacts to their body so quickly that, you know, years, a few years after 9-11, they got a brain cancer or lung cancer and they're dying. And then others, you know, you're breathing the same thing and you, you're relatively okay. The signs are, signs are kind of there. It's, it, I can never figure that one out, man. I guess it's... By God's way, way, man. I, I don't know, you know. You know, Don, I, I, you're 100% right. And that's why you can never take your life for granted. No. Or how long you're going to live, you know. No. no one has it written anywhere that says, oh, Don Young, he's going to live till he's 90 and he's going to be healthy. Bill Cannon, he's going to be dead next year. You know, <laughs> you know, you don't know. Off the bed. You know what, Don? There was something you said there that was really uh, a good point. The lieutenant that came to me in 2007, Billy Serpy, retired lieutenant, he had a very rare blood cancer. It's like one in 100,000 people get it or some large number like that. Him and his partner that were both digging in the same area both got the same rare blood cancer. So that's really? when I think they made all the links to you know, the exposure to ground zero and it made the case stronger. And thank God for the, uh, you know, the 9-11 monitoring that they, the, the World Trade Center health program. I mean, I go every year for my screening. I get medications from them and uh, thank God for that. Really, I think it saved my life. I, I really believe that. Well, and it's something that's affected uh, service members as well because uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and then also um, at the at the base that was utilized by our special forces, uh, Karsi Kanabad, uh, th there was uh, 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 burn pits set up where they just took anything, threw it into a pit, put diesel fuel on it, and lit it on fire. And I just read about this. Gotten, uh, very rare forms of cancer, and in the unit that, uh, uh, that Don was with, there, there are service members who have passed away from, uh, from cancer. So it's something that, uh, that veterans are very much interested in, in pursuing as well. You know, Steve, I've read a lot of the things and you're out. I mean, you you had an unbelievable career. You were a high school football coach. Uh, a lot of your players wound up going into the service and they came back not the same as they did when they left. And we talk a lot about on this show about PTSD, even from the police level, the PTSD that we have. Yeah. And I acknowledge the fact that I believe, and I'm not, I, I have no credentials to say this, but I believe anyone that's done 20 or more years, maybe less than that, on the NYPD, you're going to have a touch of PTSD just based on the horrors that you've, been, you've witnessed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, a number of my former athletes have also become police officers. Uh, they're, they're serving to this day um, locally here where I'm at, and then also in, in other parts of the country. And uh, I, I'm certain that they go through a lot of the same experiences that, uh, um, that, that my former athletes that went into the military have, have gone through. I think we just need to acknowledge that and, and also agree to help each other, you know, and uh, especially regarding 
you know, PTSD and my, my God, people committing suicide. The NYPD has had two so far this year. And we need to, um, you know, we need to step that up and help each other out. You know, you're, you're 100% right, Bill, about members of the service, guys that were on the job. If you were an active cop, you saw and did things. And if you did 20 plus years, like we both did, there's no question you'll have a form of PTSD one way or another. You know, right, I was in the back, not, I'm sorry, Don, go ahead. I was in, I was in the back of the stri a striker, you know, a vehicle one time in Iraq and it was a St. Louis copper with me, just like an NYPD guy, man, like a, a street guy. And we had a bunch of young soldiers around us. And one of the young soldiers turned around and said, uh, he directed a question to the St. Louis guy. And he said, uh, Hey man, aren't you afraid again? PTSD. And the St. Louis copper said, Hey, if I don't have it from St. Louis, I'm never going to have it. So, yeah, that's for so sure. I already, right? I already have it. You can't get it twice. Yeah, yeah I got right. it. So, it's, you know, come on, you know. You, you know what I think, though, Bill? I think that maybe the, uh, Don and uh, Steve can attest to it. it. It seems like in the military, they get it a little bit more acute, maybe, I guess that's the right word, and because it's more uh, concentrated, I guess. Like us, it's all spread over a long period of time, seeing different things. They're seeing all those things in a short period of time, and maybe that's why they're coming home a little more depressed or suicidal. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it hits the, 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 the hardest soldiers. Um, one of my friends is a uh, – uh, Tom Satterley is a um, – uh, former uh, former Delta Force operator, his first combat as a Delta Force operator was uh, Mogadishu in, in 1993, the, the, the Black Hawk Down uh, battle. Mm -hmm. And he served for 20 plus years, you know, saw combat in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and, and in other places. And he did fine until the day he retired from the military and all the 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 the, uh, the post traumatic stress that he kept in a in kind of a in a lockbox in his mind all came out and and he had a really tough time uh, with uh, post traumatic stress after he retired from the military. And, the you know, Sergeant Melinda, retired Sergeant Melinda, thank you so much for the ninety nine ninety nine super chat. My God, you're you're amazing. Uh, nice. 12-step woman, thank you for the 999 super chat. That's the way we finance. And I just want to mention that today I received a check for $100 from retired chief Kathy Ryan, who is uh, loves our show and is supporting the show. All you folks supporting the Police Off the Cuff family, thank you so much. And you could see the superstars we have in the show. I mean, when I read Don's resume, his military resume, I was just like, oh, my God. So humbled. And Don, it's like, you know, I would, and, and you, you can slap me when you see me, but I would say you have some kind of adrenaline, a need for this adrenaline besides service that you want to serve your country, but you love doing what you're doing, don't you? Yeah, I think you have to have a passion for it, really. You know, uh, um, I, I, I wish somebody would have grabbed my coattails when I, when I hit the 20-year mark and, and said, hey, you don't have to leave if you're still enjoying what you're doing. He's still making a difference. But, you know, there was that old adage that, you know, hit 20 and out the door, you know, because I really enjoyed what I was doing. I enjoyed it, enjoyed working with young people, you know, mentoring uh, younger detectives coming on, you know, in the street crime unit and, and trying to make a difference. So, yes, I mean, every time I've taken an assignment overseas, uh, the goal is, you know, not to get myself hurt or injured, but, but to try to make a difference, even at, 
at, uh, on a small small scale. But yes, I think it's part of it, man. You know, you just it, it, some people are cut out to do certain jobs, Bill. You know, uh, and, and I I look at it really as like a warrior ethos. You know, like the samurai warrior, man. Like they serve, man. They, they there's a higher calling, and and for me, it, it didn't just end at at 20 years with the PD. It continued, and everybody has their own higher calling, whatever they choose to do. But this happens to just be mine, you know, and that's what I kind of follow. Well, you know, retired Sergeant Melinda, who I believe was in the Army, she said, I sent my battles PD and friends' family here. And uh, she says, I hate that I am missed, but she is really serving her, serving as a civilian. And, uh, you know, she really admires her own military service, which is probably, look, that's something you can never take away, just like anyone can never take away. And if you weren't part of the NYPD club, you know, uh, retired Chief Jimmy Luongo one time, and I said this on another show, we are at a retirement party, and he's looking at all the guys in the room of the retirement party. He says, he looks at me and he says, you know something? He goes, not everyone could walk into that room. Right. And I knew exactly what he meant. You know, I knew exactly what he meant. And he, in those few words, how many people would under, have understood that except another cop, right? You know, I, I, got, I had a chance working overseas with, with cops from all over the world and all over the country. And, and uh, if I can get a message across to all guys and girls on NYPD, because, you know, on the job, you know, we have complaints and we think it's rinky-dink sometimes and whatever, man. We have complaints about it. But around the world, around the world and inside the United States, our job is the premier police department in the world. No matter what we talk about it. So I, I really like to get that point across that take pride in that fact that you, you carry that. That banner, the NYPD, man, it means something. It really does. Unfortunately, you know, maybe you don't get a chance to hear that from a cop from Germany or somebody from Afghanistan or even a cop from a, a little department down in Virginia. But they look up to us, and we we, we cut trail, man. We're the, we're the lead sled dogs. We are. You know, you know, Don, when I would get pulled over by um, by a cop from a jurisdiction, I would tell my students when I used to teach college, and they would say, what happened? I said, I'd show them my shield, and... He'd ask me where I work. I said, uh, Manhattan North Homicide NYPD. And the guy would go, I am not worthy to pull you over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> of course, that was a joke. They would go, Professor, that did not happen. I go, yeah, yeah. Right, Listen, Don, I'm glad you brought that up because we really are the greatest police department in the world. We're world-renowned. Everybody knows us. And that banner behind me, greatest detectives in the world, I really take that to heart because before I became a cop, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to become a detective, and I did it. And I just always took it seriously. And I always say that I consider myself an active cop. I would say you, being in the military, and, and I'm sure your your police record, you're a super cop, and you're like a superhero. And, and my, my hat's off to you, and, and thank you for your service. And I come from a military family. My father was a World War II Marine. Both my grandfathers, World War One in the Army. And, uh, you know, we, we're a service family, and, and we love the country. And thank you, and, and hat Thanks. off to you. You know, Don, we have another superstar in our live chat. Well, we have a bunch of superstars, but... Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, he was probably in street crime before you got there. Yeah. But he was like a legend in the 3-2. Uh, <laughs> he has a book out, uh, Harlem Raiders. I and saw that. Lieutenant Pranzo and his wife, Richella, they're big fans of Police Off the Cuff. He's here every single show to support us. So, And he owned the, he owned the night at one time, too. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Don, I got to ask you. Uh, we have a friend in common. 
And uh, I'm not going to tell you his name, but he worked in PSA 3, and he says you owe him a cab ride. Does that sound familiar? Um, yes, it does. And I don't think we can go into the story with that. Well, not, not the story, but the, he, the guy told me, he goes, he's got a 50-50 shot of guessing who, who it is because there's only two people in the cab besides you. Oh, my God. Is it? Is it? You want me to say, say the name? Yeah. Is it? Is it Gino? Gene Doherty? No. John Sorrentino. That's it, John Sorrentino. Great guy, great guy. Yeah. You should have got a you should have got a hint that he doesn't hang out with anyone else but Italians. So you should have yeah, went to the Sorrentino <laughs> name right away. You know, well, well John is a, John is a close friend of mine, and he did a lot with he was you know he was a housing cop, and then he went to the fire department. He did a, a lot with nine eleven. He lost eight guys in his firehouse, and I told Bill about having him on the show, which he'd love to come on. And uh, he says hello, and he said the same thing about you. He said you're a great guy. Yeah, he's a tremendous guy, and uh, we can't go any further with that story, unfortunately. I'll get it from him. I'll get it from okay, him. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, Don, go ahead, Bill. I'm sorry. No, no, you got a question. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, um, reading your, your resume, uh, your time street crime, I mean, we, we know about uh, all this stuff with the military. I'm sure we'll go over some more of that, but was there anything that stands out at your time in the NYPD, like uh, a shooting or something, you know, uh, a crazy case that you worked on that was maybe uh, high profile? Uh, just street crime was incredible. I mean, I, I, I caught it, you know, they were just expanding and it was the best place, the greatest bosses, the greatest cops. And I really got brought into street, street crime by, a, by one of our heroes, Kevin Gillespie. He uh, told me they were opening up the books when I ran into him down in uh, Central Booking. And uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story how I kind of got into street crime. I got into a, I had a girlfriend that, that lived in Brooklyn Heights. And on Father's Day, um, we were heading down to catch a movie in Manhattan. And on Flatbush Avenue, uh, uh, two guys tried to uh, carjack us, you know, stick us up. And I, I got into a shootout with my girlfriend in the car. I pushed it down, drove the car a little bit, jumped out of the car and chased the guys. And I ended up catching one of them. Well, when I went to um, the interview for Street Crime, Dick Savage is there, right? A legend with Captain Jack Walsh, another legend. And I forget, a, a lieutenant, I forget the lieutenant's name. And all they wanted to hear was that story. And all they were doing is slapping their knees saying, oh, we got to get this guy. He, he left his girlfriend in the car, his fiance, and chased these guys out. We got to get this guy. So that, I mean, that's one of the stories with, with street crime. It kind of got me in the door in street crime, you know? See, you I know? knew you were a super cop. Ah. <laughs> I, tried, I tried to get Dick Savage on the show, and uh, he, he uh, you know, respectfully declined but I, I would love to have him on the show i don't think he he's really that open about talking about his career but he's no. a real american hero a real superstar oh my God. what a name for street crime too right dick savage savage yeah you can't make that name up right yeah, man, get on man and what a what a great guy i mean hey, john right. sorrentino is in the live chat he th said thanks for not giving me up donnie uh, yeah, yeah. We'll do it, <laughs> i gotta get that story though we'll have to forgive that one right yeah 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 hey, yeah. hey don i want to ask you one thing if you were back on the job today and you know that they abolished street crime and all of that, if they would have put it back in with the current atmosphere, what's going on with the, you know, no bail and, and everybody's carrying guns and stuff, you think you would be able to do the job today to, or, or just get through a day? I mean, it, it's just unbelievable. The restrictions that they put on the guys in the NYPD today, if you put your hands on somebody, they're pulling out a phone they're taping it. Next thing you know, you're on the news and you're modified. You know, you. What do you think about today's atmosphere in, in policing in New York? 
Well, I mean, the type of policing that we did, and it was nothing the matter with it. It was successful. I mean, we brought the, the homicide rate from 2,600 1990s down to under 300. That was us right here, right? 30 years it took us, right? But um, you can't do that policing anymore. There's more guns out there. I know you had Walter on for NYPD Valorville, and there's a, there, you're not going to believe the amount of guns that are coming in because they have no fear carrying these a pistol now. They, they, they're not afraid of getting tossed. Uh, they know the cops aren't going to really, really um, even if the cops spot something that gives them an indicator that the guy's carrying a pistol, the cops aren't going to do nothing, so they're not afraid, afraid to carry. And if they do get rolled up, they get released on a bail reform. It, it's a it, terribly tremendous hard job to do now. And the problem with this man like street crime or, or anti-crime is that we save lives in the neighborhoods where we need to be, man. And he's unfortunately, these low-income neighborhoods, uh, there's a lot of minority people living there, and they're paying the price for people that live up in Westchester that are making these decisions. And it's not really fair, and I, I, I'm totally against it. And the policing that we did, uh, until it gets a lot worse, we can we we couldn't even touch that. We can't. The cops say they cannot do it. They well, do you know, John, one of the things, one of the reasons is also they just got rid of qualified immunity, yeah, and that sure. makes it so much easier to sue a cop, and specifically for what anti crimes and street crimes do, which is stop, question, and frisk. You're going to have some bureaucrat deciding that oh, that was a bad search. What do you mean you saw a bulge? What do you mean you saw the butt of a gun? You know. Yeah. They're going to decide that, and the cop's going to get sued. They've already changed so many things just to weaken the authority of a police officer on the street, publishing the police officer's disciplinary record so anyone can go into it. How messed up is that? So every court case now is going to start with, officer, what did you do when you got a command discipline for blah, 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 blah? You know, That's how every court case is going to start now. It's funny you brought that up, Bill, because there was a story in the Post not long ago where this law firm was representing every guy that got arrested. They would hand them a card, and they were making all these lawsuits. And no matter what they were arrested for, they were getting a few thousand here and 10,000 there from the city. And it was like the same law firm and the same 20 or 30 drug dealers that were getting locked up on the street. And they were making these complaints. And then it would from a CCRB complaint, it would go to Eternal Affairs. And next thing you know, the city was paying out. Ten grand or whatever. They want to. They want to get rid of search warrants. That's yeah, the yeah. next crazy thing they want to do. You know, first they started with no knock search warrants. Now they were talking about all search warrants. Yeah. It's incredible. It's, it's incredible. unbelievable. You know, guys, I have to go to a uh, a commercial. Uh, sit back and relax. If you guys are getting sick and tired of New York City and the high taxes, if you're looking to relocate to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Carol Waters of the Beach Realty Group has been buying and selling property in the Myrtle Beach area for 11 years now. Carol and her husband, Rob May, and retired FDNY firefighter who rolled over from the NYPD, they work as a team. Carol has been a multi-million dollar producer for the past 10 years. They have great knowledge of all aspects of the real estate industry. Carol's a well-known around the Irish community in New York. She worked in Fitzpatrick's Manhattan Hotel for over 20 years behind the stick. For you guys that don't drink, that's the bar. Originally born in the Bronx and brought up in County Mayo, Ireland. Contact Carol Waters for all your real estate needs in the Myrtle Beach area. Carol Waters, sell MB at gmail.com, 914-261-6681. And that concludes that commercial. <laughs> you know, Don, one of the things I asked you before we went on the air, and I know it's uh, um, it's a highly personal thing, but you said it would be okay if I asked you. And people would want to know, 
how the hell does this guy have any family when he's going overseas and fighting these little wars every year? How many years would you say you've been over there now? Well, I've been doing it since uh, 2002, and uh, I probably got eight years of time on the ground in Afghanistan. And, um, and That's was- unbelievable. Amazing. So like, tell Amazing. us about your, if you don't mind, about your personal life. Yeah, so, um, you know, I was married, wife, and, and three beautiful kids. And, uh, and um, I tell this story, you know, there's, there's two sides of it. You know, uh, uh, one of the programs I was in was uh, I was an operational advisor with Asymmetric Warfare Group. It's a army unit, and they, uh, it's got uh, GS government employees in there. It has green suitors, which are full-time military, and it has uh, uh, a few contractors, which are basically retired, like unit Delta guys, uh, SF guys, Army Rangers, and uh, maybe five of us or ten of us, and not even ten, that were law enforcement guys. And our rotation was three months in, three months out um, for five years. And But but the, the mission um, was was the ultimate mission, man. We were going in there working with uh, our young soldiers, saving lives, you know. We, we, were, we, were, we were tracking enemy TTPs, you know, how they, how they attacked our soldiers, the IED threat, sniping. And we'd go in there and we'd work with these young soldiers when they were new on the ground and, and talk them through these problem sets by going out with them on patrols and on missions. So, you know, these guys love, you know, the, the Donnie and Dan Smith was my partner and Ryan Law. These guys are the greatest things since sliced bread. But unfortunately, like a year or two after they're home, they don't even know you exist. But then you go home and it disconnect with your, with your wife. And um, the fact that you're not home, I don't know if it adds up, you know, uh, you know, I, obviously I lost my family because of it, you know, uh, I, I, my children, are, I have relationships with my children, of course, but it, it blew my marriage out of the water. And I, I always thought I was doing the right thing. You know, there was a, a, a bigger the mission was bigger than than me, maybe because my so my kid doesn't have to fight these battles. But it, it takes a, a serious toll on your life. There's no doubt about it. But um, somebody has to do it, man. There's a few of us out there that are doing it. You know, maybe we're handpicked from a, a higher authority. I don't know. But um uh, we save lives, but I don't know if it adds up to what the price you pay on the other side with your family. Uh, it's difficult. It's difficult. Yeah, no, I mean, I find that, um, you know, you read about even people in law enforcement when I you, you re- even read the book Donnie Brasco and what Joe Pistone gave up to be undercover. Yeah. And he gave up a lot, you know. And when I read about all the things you did or and still doing, it's – it's, it's unbelievable uh, what you've given up to do that. And one of the things that I really uh, I'm amazed at, not amazed, I, I would expect it, but using the law enforcement training and the interviewing interrogation techniques and, of course, the reading of body language, which we become experts at from all of the encounters that we've had on the street and in the inter- interview box. Well, you want to speak about that a little bit, Donnie? Well, I mean, I, I think if, if you're a street cop out in New York, I think they can drop us any place in the world and immediately you understand the atmospherics of, of the location where you're at. Like the little, you know, spidey senses go up, you know, hairs on the back of your neck. And it's really no, it's no different than uh, being in Iraq or Africa or Afghanistan. I mean, as funny as it sounds, the, um, the, the, the uh, guys that are working for ISIS or Al-Qaeda, man, the, the younger guys, you see them standing there, like in in Baghdad, wearing the sweatsuits, like the mafia guys do. <laughs> They're not hard to pick out, man. You know what I mean? So I mean, you drive down the street, and you could tell by the looks and 
and you look around, man, uh, the, it, this tenseness in the air. And I think that's, that's a, a skill set that we learn, you know, working, working in these big cities, man, in high crime areas. Um, it's not really hard to, to know when, when something's going to happen, you know, because we've been around it so much. We just have that feeling, that sense, you know. And the, the first sergeant in the company that, uh, that, that Don served with said that, that those skills are critical to the success of, of the unit in, um, in uh, uh, Diala, Iraq, and their deployment. Because, uh, he, he said, I, I, I spoke to him on the phone last night, and he said flat out that, uh, that, that Don's uh, skills at human intelligence uh, was one of the, the, the biggest payoffs of, of having him uh, be a part of the unit. All that on-the-job training in the NYPD probably came in handy. Don, in your, your bio that I read, or I guess in the article, in 2008, the Iraqi, uh, where there was the explosion, and you were able to recover a fingerprint that led to uh, one of the uh, people that made that bomb being uh, found guilty in Iraqi court. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, can, I, can I direct that to Steve? Because Steve did that whole article on it, really dove deep on that part of it. Yeah. Well, uh, basically, uh, the incident that you're talking about is um, uh, known as the Sinsel 7. Um, there's a, a, a small uh, town in uh, Diala province, Iraq, on, a, on, the, on the Diala River uh, uh, called Sinsel. And on uh, January 9th, 2008, um, a group of guys from the 3-2 uh, the uh, Striker Combat Regiment went into a building that they thought had been cleared a couple of weeks earlier. And uh, the entire building was wired to explode by, a, uh, by an insurgent. And the whole building came down. Uh, six uh, U.S. service members and an Iraqi interpreter were killed. Four other service members were, uh, were seriously wounded. And uh, it, it was one of the larger uh, single loss of life events in, 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 in our uh, time in Iraq, in the, in the time that uh, the American uh, the military forces were in Iraq. And uh, uh, subsequent to that, uh, individual guys were going back uh, to that building to try and recover uh, personal effects of, of the lost service members, whatever they could find. And, and Don realized um, that, that, that if he could go in and, and go through the, the building rubble, that he would be able to, to discover some forensic evidence uh, from what had occurred. So, uh, so he went to uh, uh, Colonel Rod Coffey, who was the, uh, the unit commander, and said, hey, if you let me go back uh, and, and go through this building, I can, I, I can find forensic evidence of who did it and, 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 and recover some personal effects of uh, uh, the service members who were lost. And they had a big discussion about it with the, uh, with the unit executive officer. And, and basically, he said, Hey, look, we don't we don't have the resources to do this. And Colonel Coffey was kind of thinking outside of the box, and he realized that uh, uh, this would be a really good thing to do. So he authorized uh, Don and then the uh, the St. Louis police officer that, that Don was talking about before to, to go back to the building site. So they uh, they secured the area. They they set up a a, a secure perimeter around the building. They had uh, thirty service members uh, go through the rubble. They had sawzalls and backhoes to pull all the concrete up. And they found uh, what was used for the, the trigger to the IED. And it was taped up and then 
Don was able to get a fingerprint off of the off of the tape and identify the uh, the insurgent who who uh, who wired the the building to explode. That's great. That's amazing. Yeah, huge. And then and then the other thing that it did was it 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 then led to the to the to the members of the unit realizing that hey Donnie can help us out here, and so and so they they were all in after that. And then Don was able to to teach the the, the unit members. Basically, it was police one on one. But when you're in the military, you don't realize that uh, um, you don't realize that that you can go through a uh, you know a building, a place that you've taken down, and collect evidence that uh, can lead to the discovery of other uh, other bad guys. And so then Don was able to to add his skill set to, to the um, the members of the of the of the striker regiment and. Uh, they were able to to catch a lot of bad guys because of it. Well, you know, Donnie, there's I just uh, what you did and what you continue to do over there is just simply amazing. But I just want to shout out to some of our other brothers from the NYPD that have done that. Um, Chris, Christopher Strom from Brooklyn to Baghdad, he has that book. Tommy Kennedy who was a legend in the three two anti crime. I don't even know how many years he did in Iraq and Afghanistan, but. Uh, He's another superstar, and I'm sure there's so many, too many, numerous to uh, to name. But what you guys do and using the skills that you learned on the NYPD is no, nothing short of spectacular. And Donnie, if you want, I would love to shout out to some of your military compadres. I'll even speak Italian if you want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just well, a load of them. <laughs> well, I'd like like to just uh, offer up, and Steve knows this because he's 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 a part of the three two family too. Um, Colonel Rod Coffey, uh, you know, in our career, we come across a lot of guys that are, are outrank us uh, in supervisory rank, but true leaders, man, there's not that many of them. And in my career, you know, it's going on almost 40 years now, uh, maybe five or six guys that are really true leaders. And uh, Colonel Coffey that, that ran uh, in charge of 3-2 SCR was, was the ultimate leader, man. This is a guy that, that could that could have fought in any war. He could have been leading the charge at Gettysburg or or, uh, or Bunker Hill. Uh, he just got it. He understood uh, Silver Star winner. And and I was lucky enough to have success inside a 3-2 SCR because this guy, like Steve said, thought out of the box. And I just want to say a, a, a few things because so, I noticed some guys listening tonight from uh, the unit, you know, and they really need to hear this, you know, because inside the military – they, they know they did a good job, but they, they don't understand how, how important that, what they were to um, the history of our, our military. And the 3-2 SCR is a conventional uh, striker regiment, you know, conventional guys, you know, infantry guys. But they're the type of guys that they were so adaptable and they could turn on a dime, man, because they had great senior NCOs, Bill Gowdy, uh, 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 Gallegos, uh, Colin Fitz. There's a bunch of them, and they had great company commanders, these young guys that, that would listen. But the thing was, the 3-2 SCR, if they were in World War II, they, they'd be considered like uh, easy company. That's how adaptable and how they were on the tip of the spear. They, they were as good as any conventional army unit that we've ever had, ever had. And I can say that because, like I said earlier, I embedded for five years with Asymmetric Warfare Group the 101st, the 82nd Airborne, 10th Mountain, 3rd ID, and I've never, ever seen a group of young men and women that did the work they did. 
They were just so flexible, adaptable. Um, you know, the military guys going in, and they, they think they're fighting a full-spectrum warfare, like army on army. And these guys, all of a sudden, they're fighting a counterinsurgency where the enemy live amongst them. And these guys just adapted, and they won the battlefield on every opportunity. They took that, they took that battlefield away from the enemy, and they, and they got their guys home safe and sound because of Colonel Coffey, company commanders, a senior NCO, and a hard break back and work that these, these young soldiers did. So I just wanted to let them know. You know, Donnie, I would like to let them know how much we appreciate them. And yeah. if I was in a command position, those would be the first guys I would want to join a police department. Unfortunately, a lot of them become disqualified because of PTSD, mm-hmm. and which is it's a, like a double-edged sword. Yeah. I had a, a, a female officer. Uh, well, actually, she was a Marine Corps. She was in the Marine Corps, and she was one of my students where I taught. And she was she had PTSD, and she was totally excluded from even like applying for the NYPD and she would have been a superstar and but they wouldn't consider taking her you know police officers and, and and they're still on the job today yeah I think that they have to overlook that a bit and just dig a little further and see that they're you know they, they could do fine you know you know when I, I when I went up to a Colonel Coffee unfortunately passed away at, at a young age and it's because uh the guy was never the same after he lost his soldiers over in Iraq. He's never the same. And it, and it killed him, basically, you know. And when I went to the, um, the memorial service, the burial at, at Arlington, I had guys coming up to me that, uh, that were now on the police department from the striker regiment. And it's because of the long conversations we had in the back of a striker while we were going on a mission or doing an operation. Of course, they always wanted to go straight from the academy into – into the SWAT or ESU, and I had to tell them. <laughs> they had to do their time in the precinct first. Yeah. But there was a few guys, more than one, that became police officers. And now they're, they're into it like 13, 14 years. One of them, uh, Clay Dunn, and I hope he's listening tonight, uh, outstanding team leader, and now he's a, he's a cop out west, I think, out in Seattle, man. Um, because, of, because of the talks we used to have, man, and, and the interest that was generated, and realizing that he could leave the military and still find – still serve and, and still have value in life, you know? So it was, it's good to see that. You know, a hundred percent. And you know, something for my money, they would be some of the best cops, but the, the, the politics behind policing these days, they're talking, you know, how the police department is a paramilitary organization. These politicians, they just don't understand policing and they're trying to get away from Policing being a paramilitary organization. Well, what would you like us to be? A power uh, social working organization? Yeah, you know, social workers. That's what they want. Yeah, and, and it's it's ridiculous because they're in like denial that there are bad bad people out <clears> there. You know, and to meet bad people, you need people willing to take the chances in order to put these bad people away. That's the other thing. I don't want to put anyone in prison or jail anymore. You know, yeah. but. It's really, it's a, it's a really touchy subject with us guys who have retired from the NYPD. You guys in the military, politicians destroy everything. Yeah, that's for sure. Don, I had a quick question for you. Did the military do any, like, I guess you saw it as a crime scene, that building that blew up. Did they do that before you started doing it with that fingerprint or did they do it after that? No, to be honest with you, um, the guys going to military, because they want to be soldiers, not to be cops, right? So, right. I mean, they, they didn't understand the dynamics, the type of uh, 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 battle that we're fighting now, these counterinsurgencies. Like, uh, 
a cell of five guys, IED cell, can tie down a battalion in an AO. Five guys. So, I mean, you can't just go out there. And the military had a term called whack-a-mole where they just go out and they, you know, they think they're having success because they kill a bunch of guys. But that's not they, – they got to get the right guys, you know. Right. And, and that's kind of what we taught them. So when, when guys like me and Chris got into, into this program, the military didn't really understand, like, sensitive site exploitation, um, things like that, or, or evidence-based operations. But now they do because they realize in the, in the conflicts that we're going to find ourselves in now and in the future – that they gotta they gotta have guys like me and others that could teach these guys um, how to how to dismantle a network. You know, same way you dismantle a, a, a drug gang in New York or a mafia or a cartel. They gotta have guys that can do that. And we had that skill set. We did. So now the military teaches that stuff. They do, but not before, not at that time. So did you ever get the opportunity? Obviously, it sounds like you're targeting a criminal organization, but did you ever get the opportunity from evidence that you recovered to put your hands on one of these scumbags and, and you know, uh, either arrest them or kill them? Well, there was uh, in, 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 G, in GCO, I, I, I flexed between the companies. There was four companies inside this battalion, and when one was down doing a refit, I'd go out with the other guy. So I was always on the road going out, doing missions or whatever, operations. And... Um, Gco, uh, one of the platoons, Colin Fitz, who's a hero, um, he got shot with every weapon system that the Iraqis had through his deployments. I mean, the guy was a bullet magnet. We'd get shot, and then he'd come back, and a guy from Mississippi, he'd come back and, and lead more soldiers into battle. Oh, uh, he grabbed me one day, and he's like, "Listen, um, we got word, you know, from the CI that there's a there's a an S vest, and they're gonna when we when we do our patrols through the village, they're gonna clack it off amongst us. You know, thirty guys, you know." They're going to try to blow us up when we go in there. He goes, we, we think we got a line on where, where the S-Vest is or the guy that's going to wear it because we want to do a night mission and we want you to come along and then we want you to do, handle the, uh, the entire mission. By, by S-Vest, you mean suicide vest, suicide right? Yeah, suicide vest. No, because, you know, we, cops and, and military all speak in acronyms, but some right. of our fans actually <laughs> yeah, so, don't yeah, speak so, in acronyms. That's right. So they, they got a line on where – where this guy lived in a, in the, in the village, one of the compounds and Fitz wanted me to go along. So when we hit the compound to, to talk to the guy, to in, in, interview him and uh, find out where the vest is at. So we, uh, I'll tell you what, we move, we, we hit the, this village in the middle of the night and you want to feel power, man. It's nothing like the power of 30 guys fully armed, a platoon of guys knowing what they're doing, moving through a village, man. I mean, you get, it's like a wave just coming in. There's nothing that's going to stop it, you know? And we get to the compound, secure the compound. We grab the guy and then Fitz was like, Donnie, there's a room in the back. Go talk to him and find out what S-Vest is. So I had an opportunity to go back there and speak to the young man and uh, find out what the S-Vest was. And we took that off the battlefield and none of our guys got killed. So yeah, I, I did have opportunities to, um, to see the end results of that stuff. And later on in Afghanistan, more of that stuff because they brought in a thing called evidence-based operations where we bring in evidence and we put it, we put it through the Afghan courts where you could follow it from cradle to grave. So yeah, yes, Phil, for sure. That's a, that that's that was great. That was great. I just want to shout out to some of our uh, live chatters, Peter Pranzo, of course, Rebecca Hicks. Thank you for watching Bill Ryan from Ryan investigative group, Sergeant Melinda. Thank you for your service. Thank you for being one of our greatest fans. Uh, MC's audio. John Sorrentino, uh, 
Oscar Ferrafino, retired Queens homicide sergeant. Um, what else I got here? I'm making a lot of comments myself. I'm going to say police off the cuff, but Richella Pranzo, she's with Pete all the time. They're the closest married couple I've ever seen. They don't go anywhere without each other. That's great. Nice. Uh, who else we got? Retired? No, no, I got Church Avenue Dan. Uh, it's the first time I've seen you. Welcome to the show. Uh, 12 Step Woman, of course. One of our biggest uh, supporters, Duty Ron. Thank you so much. Thank you for the $10 super chat. Marcello Cello Hernandez. Thank you, brother. Tim Acosta. Uh, people don't like when I do this shout out, but I'll always do it anyway. You can change the channel if you don't like it. Heather77. Um, I think I pretty much, Tim, Tim Acosta got you. Boxing MMA. Hoppy, hoppy. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. And uh, let me get back to the show. Uh, Charleston, Amy, thank you so much. Uh, you know, Don, it's amazing when you can use your police training and to save military lives. And your service is just invaluable over there. And, you know, you go back. I was never in the service. I feel like I was in the service because I was on the NYPD for 27 years. But you go back even to the Vietnam uh, warfare and how Viet, the Viet Cong used guerrilla warfare. And I think in the very beginning, our soldiers were shocked at that. They were expecting like a World War II type That's right. in, you know, encounter. And look at how it's evolved. What you're talking about now with these IEDs, improvised explosive devices. And that's how they're fighting, much like you know the Viet Cong in, in a guerrilla type warfare. You want to touch upon that a little bit? Well, you know, um, the stuff, and it's not only me, the, the program had a lot of stud police officers in there, um, men and women. And uh, the stuff that we did over in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan is now military doctrine, the law enforcement aspect. So they're, they're being taught this, uh, you know, evidence-based operations, sensitive site exploitation. When um, a, a, years later, when I was in Afghanistan, the, uh, the FBI used to send uh, FBI agents over uh, no other comments with that, but they they send a good FBI agent <laughs> that would work I'm with a lover of, of the feds. <laughs> no, nah, no way. But, you know, if a guy was a local cop and became an FBI agent, usually he was a good guy. But they would send a couple of FBI agents over and work with the SF groups for that specific reason to go out when they did uh, operations, hit high-value high targets to collect, uh, like Steve had mentioned in the article, pocket litter, cell phones, SIM cards, uh, computers, all this stuff. And actually, uh, uh, a part of my career, I worked on Chapman, Chapman Base, which is the, uh, you've got maybe heard about it in the movies, and uh, and um, and uh, it was a very famous base. It was an OGA base, you know, uh, special people on that base. And we, we would go out with the SF teams, and we joined them with the FBI agents, and it was kind of funny. But, yeah, the military has bought into it. They can't, I mean, if we fight Korean, it's like armor on armor. It's one thing. But now we're identifying, it's really amazing when you think about it, we're identifying one person on a battlefield that's killing our soldiers or killing our colleagues, you know, our, 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 uh, our allies. And that's pretty amazing, man. Think of World War II, they would never do that. Now we identify it to one person and we target that person. So it's pretty amazing, the law well, enforcement. You know, Johnny, it's almost comparable to uh, the busy precincts where a gang can cause yeah. – Great havoc, you know, 
uh, do do most of the shootings, most of the murders, and yeah. you know politicians don't understand that. That they, they just they just don't they want to take away the ability to the, for the police to attack specifically attack the cancer, get rid of it. Yeah, you know they want to take away the tools for cops to do that. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, uh, policing as as the three of us know it, you know, uh, and as as Steve grew up, it has changed, man. And we opened that door, and we'll probably never get back to back to the way it was, but. Um, you know, in, in, in these neighborhoods that we work, Bill and, and, and Phil, you know that it, it, the percentage of, of, of bad people that were creating turmoil in these neighborhoods was tiny, but you had to surgically try to remove them. And now they're not giving the opportunity to do that. So what do you do, man? I mean, just wait till the crime takes place and go take a report, I guess. It's, the, the good people are going to pay the price for these decisions that our politicians are making right now. Yeah, and because they they don't know what they're they're talking about. They yeah. don't know anything about policing, but yet they they're woke. That that's I love that word. They're woke. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the people are paying the price already. But go, going back to something that Don just said, back in '89 is when I got into the bureau. So from '89 to about '93, the bureau basically. If you made two collars a month, that was cool. Uh, it wasn't really arrest-oriented. They would want you to refer everything to court. Then Giuliani, Bratton, and Sorry. Jack Maple started the broken windows policy. And then instead of referring a case to court, we would go out and make a collar. And it really put a big damper on major crimes. And, and you, you know, the, the, the policy, the broken windows policy, is sort of like what Don was explaining in war. They were taking the forensic evidence and they were going trying to find the guys and it was probably shutting down a whole network. Well, that's what we were doing in the 90s with the police department, you know, going after these small things and, and maybe putting a guy in jail for something that he would have been referred to court. And, you know, it just really had a tremendous effect on lowering crime in, in, uh, in New York City. And now it's going in the opposite direction. I mean, everybody knows that. I, I still stay in touch with a lot of uh, active cops. And, uh, you know, the, the the guys that are carrying guns are just outright doing it. And if you you know, go to stop them, their friends whip out their phones. Uh, I think I said that earlier. So uh, we're, we're in for another uh, bit of a ride, I think, uh, with an uptick in crime. And I think it's throughout the whole United States. You know, obviously New York and uh, a lot of the big cities. But uh, I think the whole United States is going to feel it, the, the, what's going on with policing in, in the current atmosphere. Well, you know, Don and, and, and uh, Steve, on Wednesday nights, I do a show called To the Point with Ed Mullins, who's the president of the SBA. And the last four shows, we've interviewed um, the PBA president of Seattle, of Chicago. Um, where was the others? There was two other towns. I'm, I'm losing it right now. But anyway, th this week, we're also going to be interviewing. The, and they all have the same problems. Some Seattle, some worse than others. But it all comes back to left-wing progressive nonsense that... That whole even phrase, defund the police, anyone that would say that is a moron. It's and insane. I, it's completely insane. It's insane. It's insane. They, just, they just do not understand policing whatsoever. Steve, you want to comment on that? Well, uh, you look at the, at, at the crime rates in the major cities, and they're all spiking. Um, I was reading that... I'm trying to think that uh, Midtown, I, I heard uh, that Midtown Manhattan, there's been a, a huge uh, 
spike in, in sexual assaults, um, huge spikes in, in, in murder rates in cities like Louisville. Um, in fact, in Louisville, they're, they're having a large number of officers that are just up and leaving the department, not even retiring, just resigning. Um, it's, it's a problem. It's definitely a problem. It's a huge problem. In fact, the uh, retirements on the NYPD are up like 75% this year. What is that telling you? If that's not speaking for, and you know something, it's a shame in New York State that Cuomo gets a buy. He's the one that started all of this with the police reform coming down from the state. Either do this, that, and this, or you don't get this money. So the whole bail reform thing came down from the state. Great idea, you know. Great idea from this governor, you know. I just don't understand what the end game is for them. I mean, I guess they live on that hill where they don't have to, and they have security. They don't have to worry about getting carjacked or their home burglarized or maybe sexually assaulted one of their family members. But I just don't understand what the end game is because in 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 front of them, our our country is is evaporating, man. It's just, it's being destroyed, and they don't even seem to care really. So I don't I don't get it. The only conclusion I could draw from it is what you said, that they're obviously, they're living in a, in a bubble where they're protected by security 24 hours a day, and they hate the country. They don't care about their constituents, because if you did, how could you back these kind of policies of defund the police? It's completely insane, and it makes no sense, and what what really is their end game? I, I, I don't know. I, do they have children? Do they have grandchildren? Because that's what I think about, my future for my kids and, and my grandkids, and what are they going to be faced with? I mean, it, it's it's really uh, deteriorating quickly, and things are changing very quickly in, in in this time. You know, I mean, the whole thing with the uh, with the COVID nineteen with the coronavirus that changed everything, and then I think it just speeded up all the other stuff that they're looking to do. Yeah, you and, know, uh, they have a great IO campaign though because they managed to get elected. So I mean, they, they they're doing something right for themselves uh, to to manage to get the votes, and it's. Uh, sometimes I think people just are ignorant. Like, you know, you just can't watch one news news uh, network to get your answers, man. You got to research. And people are, are, in my opinion, are too lazy to do the due diligence to research it. If I hear this, let me see. Let me try to match it up to see if it's it's legit. And right. they just the first one. We get, you know, we used to say this over in Afghanistan all, all the time. If the U.S. did a like a, an airstrike, the Taliban would get the message out right away that the U.S. blew up a compound with innocent people in it. And the first one that got the message out, the people believed. So even if we said later on that, no, we, we killed a, a, a Al-Qaeda cell, the people wouldn't believe it because the Taliban said it was all innocent people. Yeah. And and uh, the, the politicians now, they're the first ones to get the message out, you know, and, 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 they, and they rule the day, they win the day. And so that's the problem, man. No one looks into it to see if it facts checks it, you know. Well, Sounds like fake news to me. Not a not the same thing, but I remember right around the time I retired, the Amsterdam houses had a huge gang case, huge. And then they took right. I retired. I saw gang took it down. They pulled out like fifty or sixty arrests. All of a sudden, the people in the building were like, "That's my cousin. That's my son." That you know, all these people didn't occur to them that all the gang bangers were related to them. You know, so when you hear all of this stuff about community policing, yeah, guess what? The community. Could be related to you, you know. That's right. Yeah, it's amazing. amazing. They were complaining. All of a sudden, they didn't like that the the gang unit took down all these gang bangers, you know. Yeah, but I bet their lifestyle became a lot better. You know, yeah, they dodging bullets, uh, you know, sitting on a park bench. 
You know, when, when I got when I got on the job in '82, I went down to PSA two. You know, and I worked. Uh, you know, it's down by the 73rd, the 75th, and I worked at Ville area. You know, Stone Avenue, Mother Gaston, where Brownsville houses, Van Dyke, Tilden, Langston Hughes, they're all butted against each other. This whole big complex, and and still to this day, that's the highest crime and the worst area to work. But you know, when I was doing my four to twelves and my midnights, because I was a young guy coming in there, I I, I thought like almost everybody's bad. Every there's, there's no good people around here basically. Until I worked a day tour and I was standing by the train station by Livonia Avenue, and then you see all these hardworking people going to school. You never see them any other time because they right. go they go to work, they come home and they head right to that apartment. They're like they're like uh, locked up, man. It's crazy. And when you see that, you realize that. These small group of people controlled the lifestyle and how people live their lives in these projects. Well, I'm, I'm talking about projects now, but it could be a neighborhood, right? It, it was terrible. And it, and it really took me to do like day tours to see like that the community had the majority were hardworking, struggling people like we are, not these bums that are standing on the porches slinging crack, you know, or doing robberies. But until you see that, man, you don't realize it. And, it, and that small group can control projects projects you know well don the first thing they would do was break the lock to the front door right oh so yeah they, yeah, they yeah. Could well, their right in the building the and they could just run in you know and they didn't even live in the building and they'd run into that was the thing when you got to a chase with them they'd run into a run into the building and they they apartment people left their apartment doors open they just run into a, a random apartment and slam the door and lock it and just basically hold the person hostage until we we're done searching so if you could catch them before they hit that apartment, you, you got them. But if they, once they hit the apartment, that door, you wouldn't know where they went. It was, um, you know, it was uh, it was different times, you know. And probably now you can't even chase them because that's probably you no, know, and you're not allowed to do verticals anymore in yeah. housing projects. Oh my god, yeah. that's, how we, that, that's how we can track. Like, who thought of that? You know, unbelievable. You know, I want to ask you one thing that's that was on my mind. We just heard that. Um, the U.S. is pulling out of Afghanistan. What are your thoughts about that? So I, I got mixed feelings on it because I spent a lot of time over there. And I lost buddies over there. So it's time to pull out. It really is. We sacrificed so much blood and treasure. And, and we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but I was on a special program over counter-corruption advisory group. And that's a story in itself, man, how much money was being corrupted by the Afghan governments that was working hand-in-hand -hand with the Taliban. That's a whole other... You wouldn't believe the, the, the amount of money. But to, to go back, we, we invested so much blood and treasure in that place that it's time. But it's, it, it, Afghanistan is in, in such a sensitive location, we need to keep a presence there. We need to keep the ability to do surgical strikes. Because if you look on a map, who it's around, Pakistan, it borders up with Russia, it borders up with Iran, it holds a border with China. So you've got to be able to keep a capability to have a task force over there to you know, uh, make sure they don't they don't start building these terrorist training camps again. But as far as like nation building over there, it ain't working. We tried, and it really doesn't work. Uh, inside the major cities of, of Kabul and Kandahar, the government has has uh, has an effect. But you get outside there, you get ten kilometers outside, and it's tribal war. It really doesn't work. So it's time, but we got to keep we got to keep a, a, a surgical a surgical ability to to uh, attack our enemies before they attack us on a homeland. Out in the, out in the, in the country in, in Afghanistan, life literally hasn't changed socially 
since the year seven or 800, except for the addition of AK-47s. I mean, that's, that's, that's about the size of it right there. Wow. I guess that kind of sums it up why you're not able to, you know, form a stable government and, uh, yeah. you know, nation build. I guess that sums it up right there. Well, you know, we go into these places and we tell them what we think they need. It, it never works that way. I mean, they, you should be soliciting advice from them. What can we do to help you? Not going yeah. in and telling them this is what you need. You need equal rights for women when it's never really going to happen. I mean, I know it should it should be that way, but it's never going to happen. But we try to tell them, and they'll tell us whatever we want to know as long as we're feeding them the dollars, you know. But as soon as the dollars dry up, man, they just go back to doing how they, how they live their life, like Steve said, for a thousand years since Alexander the Great, you know. That's how they live it. Well, that's the whole thing. I think our country always thought that we should do nation building, and it's like yeah. trying to tell someone how to live in, in the American way, you know. The anthropologist, his name is Lincoln Kaiser. And um, uh, he, he wrote a book uh, about uh, Pashtun society, which includes uh, 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 a, part of Pac um, a part of Afghanistan. And the, the title of the book was uh, Friend by Day, Enemy by Night. And he, he, he went to Afghanistan and, and lived in a village in, um, I believe it was like the late 1960s. And essentially... He was he was run out of town in fear of his life after seven months. He couldn't complete the, the work that he set out to do because he, he was seen as an outsider and as an interloper. And some somebody put a, you know, a, a, put, put a word out on him. And, and that was the end of his the end of his tour right there. And so things have not changed in Afghanistan since that time. But it seems like, you know, we spend billions and billions of dollars, especially, I mean, in the Middle East, of course, our biggest ally is Israel. But uh, they sometimes seem like they're on their own uh, over there. And that, that could be really dangerous if that ever happens. Yep. I think that's all according to who's in office, too. You know, the current uh, administration, I think Trump was uh, doing a lot for Israel and doesn't seem like uh, they're carrying the torch uh, with Israel with this new administration, you know. Yeah, we have to support Israel, man. They, they're our steadfast um, ally over in the Middle East with Jordan, too, obviously, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, we have to uh, make sure um, that we, we stand shoulder to shoulder with them because they, they keep those, uh, those gates from opening sometimes, you know what I mean? Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, Bill, when we were talking uh, earlier today, there was something that was in the bio about Bosnia with the uh, the 14, 1,400 uh, Timorese uh, refugees that you helped secure and save. You want well, to it, it, was East, it was East Timor. And East I, Timor. I went over there. Yeah, I was working for the United Nations then. And I went over there as a security for the uh, – they were doing uh, – East Timor was voting for independence or autonomy from uh, Indonesia. And when they voted, uh, the country went up in flames, and they evac'd all the UN. Uh, we, there was a small contingent of police officers, and they evac'd us down to uh, UN headquarters down in Dili. And um, the people started getting killed out there from militias that were being supported by the uh, Indonesian military. And about 1,400 of them came running to the UN compound looking for uh, a safe safe zone, you know? Safe and, haven. Uh, yeah, safe haven. And they were killing them outside in the the parking lot, man, hacking them up with machetes, shooting them, throwing grenades at them. And um, a couple of us <laughs> got the gate open and let the people in. And uh, we had 1,400 people in there 
you know, women, children, all that stuff. And um, we secured the gate. And then uh, so we, we were a lot, we, you know, they had us surrounded outside. And it went down to the United Nations Security Council. Uh, they, they rolled in a, a Marine Expeditionary Force off the coast, you know, in case they were going to try to go into the compound. And um, there was 12 of us police officers that uh, said we wouldn't leave because the, the, the head UN official, the uh, SRSG, wanted to leave. And they were going to leave these 1,400 people inside the compound. And the Indonesian uh, government military said, we take care of them. But they would get they would have got killed, raped and killed. And it was uh, uh, 12 of us police officers that said, we ain't going until these people are removed. And uh, we end up spending, spending two weeks there until they negotiated. And myself and uh, uh, this uh, Australian police officer, I hope he's listening to Aaron and Sharon and Pete. We stayed to the end, man, until everybody got out. They evac them to Australia, and they stood in Australia until they sent the military force in there to secure the country. So, um, uh, yeah, it was uh, uh, people. A lot of people would have died if we if we if we didn't stay. You know, you know John, that's an amazing story, and really amazing. You have hundreds of those stories of uh, almost like going against the uh, the command. When well, you the know, was, was telling you to let these people get slaughtered. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you a quick thing. You know, they, they recently had a, the anniversary. I think it was the 20th anniversary. And the SRSG, the top UN official, went back there. And they were, they were giving them all awards, you know, great guy. And uh, I really want to go back now because it's, it's out, you know, it's near Bali, man. It's beautiful out there. You know, it's a, a, a swimming, scuba diving. It's an island. It's beautiful. And when I heard this guy was going back getting awards and he was a coward, uh, I was so upset with it, man. So uh, like Aaron and some of the other guys, uh, uh, Pete, when I knew this guy, because he wanted to leave these people, man. He wanted to leave them there. And they would have been killed. And, and, and yeah, we have a code of conduct. You know, uh, we live by a code of conduct. We could not let that happen. We refuse to let that happen. You know, and um, that's, that's how it went. God bless you that you did that. And the rest oh. of the guys that were with you. Yeah, it, it was just good people, man. Uh, yeah. You know, when you surround yourself with good partners, man, uh, you can really make miracles happen. You can really move a you can move a, a, a building if you have to, and uh, and um, and that's what it was, you know. So uh, we were lucky, and, and thank God those people got out of the country and, and lived another day. You know, Donnie, uh, we're, we're at like an hour and ten minutes. I'll go. We'll go a little longer, but I, I, we got to start like giving our closing remarks and. One of the things I want to ask you is, how much longer can you do this? And do you worry? This is a two-part question. Don't try to bag in there. All right, this is a two-part question. How much longer can you do this? And do you ever worry that when you come home, you may not be able to handle being home? Well, I, I want to do it until I'm not capable. Of do, like I want to, as long as I can contribute to a mission, mission success. Uh, I'll keep on doing it. If I, I always thought that, like, if it come uh, one of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, countries, and uh, and I I can't protect myself, and uh, and someone else has to, you know, run me off, uh, run me off a battlefield. I don't want to get see anybody get hurt, and that has not been the case yet. I can still physically handle myself. I'm healthy. I can still do the job. Part two of that is, do I ever worry about coming home and not fitting in? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. I come home I, when I'm over there. I can't wait to get home. I come home and and uh, things have changed. You know what I mean? Like people move on with their lives, you know. So and they don't want to hear no stories. I mean, you know, they you tell them one story and and they want to they want to talk about you know the Mets or uh, 
or you know the Tony, you know something? You have to be in a bar with other cops. We love telling war stories. Yeah, I know. And I, as we drink, yeah. the war stories get better and better and better. And I just want to yeah. let you know, retired Sergeant Melinda, who thinks she may have worked with you over there, she said, please tell him, Bill, how much we love him, respect, and understand. Thank you, Melinda. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. That's wonderful. But yeah, quite, to, to, to answer your second part, I do wonder, like, how to settle into uh, to a, a normal I, – I don't hit golf balls. I don't drop – I don't, I don't fish. A good buddy of mine, Woody Zunich, tried to get me out fishing, and I, I really enjoyed it. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I do wonder about that, Bill, to be honest with you. Like, going back to – Well, he uh, got nervous when you went fishing and you brought the AK. That's when he got nervous. Yeah, I know. Man. No, <laughs> no, no, you're no, supposed you're to use fish. a fishing pole with bait and hook, not a rifle. But, you know, the, the, the feelings that I have about coming home is, is the same feelings that these uh, young cats, man, from uh, – a military, uh, it's the same thing, man. Like, how do you how do you really fit back in again? And uh, and also, you know, how do you control uh, uh, your anger sometimes because it can flash quick, you know? So th these are things we have to deal with, you know. Of course, you know. Hundred so. percent, Sheila. Thank you so much for the twenty dollars super chat. And uh, Steve, uh, we got to give you some time for your closing remarks because I said, as I said, we're we're getting close. Uh, whenever I close, we wind up spending fifteen or twenty minutes closing. So okay. You know, we, we, uh, we're talking about some important things here. Absolutely. But I guess uh, a couple of things. First, um, everybody that I, that, I, that I talked to about uh, Don's work uh, with the 3-2 um, had the highest praise for him. And, and he, he did great work with a, with a great unit. Um, uh, the article that I wrote is a, a part of a, uh, a book project that I'm working on. Uh, which is going to be about the, the, the men. It's actually two units. It's the same group of men. The first unit that was the, uh, the 124th, and then the, and then the second unit was the 3-2, and they had two deployments to Iraq and were very highly decorated, and their story needs to be told to a wider audience. And, and so that's the, the, the project that I'm working on, and, and I'm getting some help from uh, – the Second Mission Foundation, which is um, uh, run by Lieutenant Colonel Charles Faint, who's a, a veteran himself. And so um, uh, I'm looking forward to, to, to getting into the stories of these uh, brave soldiers and, 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 and telling it, uh, telling their, their stories to a, a much, much wider audience. And then the other thing is that uh, I realized uh, it, when I was doing a lot of the background research for, the, for Don's work, I realized how effective uh, the law enforcement professional program was and uh, how important it, it's become uh, to our fighting these small insurgent wars in uh, uh, faraway places where conventional forces aren't going to aren't going to work without uh, being adaptable, like what Don talked about before and, and being able to uh, uh, engage with the, the local people in the in the municipalities where they're uh, uh, deployed to 100% you know something uh Steve you're a great american and you're going to tell these stories that are going to shed some light on the great work these guys are doing and i i couldn't help but think of this and i remember in the first rambo movie he said here we go rambo what do you want he says i want my country to love me as much <laughs> as i love it <laughs> That's about as profound as Sylvester Stallone gets, though. You know? Dude, uh, 
But your country should love you. And yeah. now our guest host tonight, the Joe Pesci lookalike and second grade <laughs> NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. Final thoughts, Phil? Well, I just want to say, Don, it's been a pleasure to meet That's you cool. and Steve. Uh, I'm in awe of both of you. Uh, I know all the stuff that your resume speaks for itself. And uh, Steve being an educator and he does a lot of uh, charity work from what I understand. And uh, he's got a 70 mile run that he does Memorial Day. And just yep. thank you for your service, both of you. And uh, God bless. And uh, it was just a, a tremendous honor and a, a pleasure to be speaking with you guys tonight. Thank you so much. You know, Bill, Bill, um, thanks for letting us. Thanks for letting us on tonight. Tell well, us I, I want you guys to uh, to stay in touch. You know, and uh, I'd love to have you come back on again. I don't want you coming on next week, but I'd like to have you guys come on again because you know your life is one, you know, one big story. And uh, I'm one American and one police officer that really appreciates you, and appreciates the guys fighting the good fight overseas, and you know. Cops and guys in the military are pretty much cut out of the same cloth. And you're both, man. And you I mean, I can't even imagine doing what you've done. Although you must have a huge bank account, though, working all of these uh, tax-free jobs. <laughs> I hope you're buying real estate. Hope you're buying real estate over here because you come back six years later, you're like, wow, I only paid 100 grand for that. It's worth a million now. <laughs> now you're talking like Joe Pesci. Come on. That's, that's right. <laughs> hey, hey, Bill, can I say one thing before uh, you can we're going? Say whatever you want. So I, so I want to give a shout out to Street Crime Unit. I think Ray, Ray can see that. And uh, I want Ray Ramos, Detective Ray Ramos, man. He was one of my gang guys, and then he went on to be the premier uh, gang detective in street crime. So I just want to say, Hey, Ray, thanks for the compliments and, and for allowing me to work with you and learn it from you. Thank you, Ray. That's great. You know something? What other job do you have 25, 30, 35, 40-year relationships with people? No. There's no other job than the police service or the military possibly. But, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, look, I mean, I've known people for 30 years, 35, 40. I mean, what, that that doesn't happen in any other profession. There's a connection. Yep. 100%. It's, it's, it's funny you talk about that, Bill, because Bill and I never met on the job. We met, we both retired. We worked on a show called The Perfect Murder. And, you know, he had did it a few times before, and then I was doing it for the first time, and we just clicked. We were both in the bureau, and uh, we've been friends ever since. And uh, look what we're doing now, you know? Yeah, it's funny. I didn't know him, and we were both playing the lead detective on this TV show. Huh. He was all nervous, but I had I had like two or three other episodes. I was the big hairbag on the show. <laughs> You're the veteran. Like, Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Just be who you are, you know? I, I remember exactly what he said to me. I was like, you know, I'm a little nervous. I never did this before. You know, I, here I was. Uh, they were putting tape on the floor. The cameras were rolling, the lights. He goes, Phil, just do what you would normally do in a case. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. And first scene, we hit it off, and it was perfect after that. You know, it was That's exactly the ability of a New York City detective. That's what that is. Yeah, good good point. Adaptability. 100%. Bill, I want to make one mention. Uh, ahead, this week we lost a police officer from Highway, a police officer Sakos. Condolences <laughs> to his family. That low life uh, that, that ran him over with the car. Uh, you saw the YouTube, what she was saying. Uh, F the police and all of that. Uh, hopefully there's going to be some justice for her. But condolences to his family. We lost, lost another <laughs> member of... Uh, of the NYPD, unfortunately. Thank you, Phil. And to all the Police Off the Cuff fans, thank you so much. To Donnie Young and Steve Lewis and our Police Off the Cuff family, 
Folks, thank you so much for watching. This was an amazing episode. Good night now. Thank you. Thank you.